Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. He kōna e pūrangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. I didn't start out in souls at all. I've had a very mosaic science career I suppose I started out in geology I love the big idea stuff like plate tectonics and you know to realise that you're so insignificant in the universe and you know climates and things like that and and of course history like evolution itself you know these tiny little soft bodied organisms that were preserved so nicely on shales and that uh, you know hundreds of millions of years old the idea that you're really just a dot <laughs> in the universe and you're quite insignificant. I guess I like that idea. Kia ora, no mai haramai ki te Hello and welcome to Our Changing World, ko Clerk and Cannon tēnei. While Professor Amanda Black may not have started her scientific career studying soils, that's where she is now. But she has kept that big picture thinking. Not just soils, but it's also... The interactions between the plants and the soils and the animals and the plants and the insects and the plants and the soils is kind of that, that intricacy and that, you know, they're really drivers of everything that we need to exist on this earth. Amanda is the director of the Bioprotection Aotearoa Centre of Research Excellence. Normally based in Lincoln University, I got the chance to catch up with her in the Otipoti studio because she was in town as a visiting speaker for the Wild Dunedin Festival. It's great that, you know, Dunedin can have that environmental focus, whether it's whenua, whether it's marine, and get people out to see, you know, the beauty of what's in their own backyard. The Wild Dunedin Festival of Nature runs each year in April to match with the timing of Earth Day. Every year there's a theme, and in this, its eighth year, the theme was whenua. Discounted eco-tours, pop-up stalls in the mall, painting with soil in the art gallery, fossil hunts and science shows in the local museums, expert talks and hands-on workshops. There was over 120 different events as part of the festival, including, as for all other years, the opening 7x7 Wild Talks event, where speakers are given seven minutes to talk about their chosen Fenua-related topic. And University of Otago PhD student Emma Curtin used her time to talk about the benefits of an insect quite recently introduced into Aotearoa. So in order to start the story, it's necessary to go back to the beginning, 85 million years back to be precise. So at this time, New Zealand was part of the supercontinent Gondwana land. 85 million years ago, New Zealand broke away from that supercontinent and drifted to its current position. Now, that was before the mammals really took off and became the big thing that they are today, and that is the reason why New Zealand has no native land mammals. If you have no native land mammals, you have no dung beetles because there's no poo for them to eat. There have been a lot of mammal introductions in the intervening years, but unfortunately, we haven't brought the dung beetles with them that would naturally coexist with mammals uh, in other places in the world and would naturally help to clean up after them. A mammal introduction has been a very big deal for New Zealand. Farming is the single biggest use of land in New Zealand. It covers 54.8% of the country. And we have a lot of cows. 
So we have some 52 million grazing animals in New Zealand. Those animals drop dung across 17 million hectares of farmland. And one of my favourite things about science is that you can find someone willing to measure just about anything. And one of my favourite studies is the one where they work out exactly how much poo you can get out of one cow. So one cow alone defecates on average 16 times a day. A single dung pat from a dairy cow can cover an area of 0.14 metres squared, meaning that one cow can cover an area of 2.31 metres squared in dung every day. Multiply that by the 10 million cows that we have in New Zealand and you have 23.1 kilometres squared. <laughs> Omaru is 21 kilometres squared. <laughs> Queenstown is 28. There are a couple of other problems with farming as well. So grazing animals, particularly heavy ones like cows, compact the soil. They literally squash it down. So if you think of the soil like a sponge, it's full of lots of little holes called pores. When that sponge is compressed, those holes can't hold any water. And so when it rains, like it did to an extreme extent recently with Cyclone Gabriel, there's nowhere for that water to be absorbed. And so it runs off across the surface, and when it does that, it takes with it all the nutrients and cow poo and things into the waterways, and that's really bad news. So compressed soil also means that plants don't grow very well. And so farmers need to add lots of chemicals and fertilizers to the soil to counter that. Having animals living in very high densities and in constant contact with their own poo means that they're highly susceptible to infection by nematode worms. So farmers need to use a lot of drench to counter that. And one of the downsides of drench is that it also kills all the beneficial microorganisms in the soil. That requires more fertilizer to counteract and round and round we go. So you might think with all these detrimental environmental impacts that farming is a bad thing. That's not necessarily the case. Farming earns New Zealand $17 billion a year. Dairying alone earns New Zealand $641 per person per year. So it's not so much that we need to stop farming, but that we need to farm better. And this is where dung beetles come in. So in response to the realisation that we need to clean up our act when it comes to farming, the Dung Beetle Release Strategy Group was formed and they began the very lengthy process of applying for permission to introduce dung beetles into New Zealand. And in 2011, that permission was granted. But what are dung beetles anyway? Dung beetles are beetles that feed partly or exclusively on dung. So the one on the left here is what most people think of when they think of dung beetles. These are the quite comical ones. They roll dung into a ball and they trundle around with it while they're being filmed by David Attenborough. And <laughs> unfortunately, the species that were released here in New Zealand are tunneling ones. These are quite a bit less entertaining to watch, sadly, but they are much better at cleaning up farms. So what tunnelers do is they go up and down, up and down beneath the dung pat, they take dung with all its lovely nutrients down to the roots of the plants where it's needed, and they bring soil up to the surface. So that tunnelling action literally reinflates all the pores in the soil. Taking the dung nutrients down and mixing up those soil layers is extremely beneficial for the health of the soil, and it vastly reduces the need for fertilisers and other interventions. There are many other benefits too. The processing of dung significantly reduces methane emission from cow pads. The way that dung beetles process the dung, physically process it, breaks down nematode eggs. So dung beetles are able to reduce cattle nematode infections by up to 99%. That essentially eliminates the need for any harmful drenches, which is very good news for the environment, and it means the stock are healthier. So dung beetles can improve the soil structure and reduce compaction. They're able to reduce nutrient runoff into streams and lakes, 
um, they can increase the biodiversity of the soil itself, um, including things like earthworms, which are also beneficial. That's great. Because the dung isn't on the surface anymore, it's underground, it means that it can't be accessed by nuisance insects like flies, so you get less of them. Great. They're also able to increase the amount of grazing land that's available for cows. So animals, quite understandably, will not graze around their own poo. If there's no poo there, there's more space for them to graze. So overall, dung beetles increase farm productivity. And best of all, dung beetles are tied to dung at multiple points in their life cycle. So unlike certain other introductions into New Zealand, uh, possums, stoats, I'm looking at you, these guys can't go rogue. So they are tied to dung at multiple points. If there's no dung, they cannot exist. So they pose very little risk to our native wildlife, which is great. They cannot suddenly decide to stop eating poo and start eating kiwi. They are a win-win. So dung beetles may be a relatively recent arrival in New Zealand, um, but their benefits have been recognised for a very long time. The ancient Egyptians used to worship dung beetles. They believe that they are responsible for the rising of the sun each day. Well, I'm not aware of any current research into whether or not dung beetles can shift the sun, but I think you'll agree that they can change the world in a number of other ways. And I think that's pretty good going for an insect that's only the size of your thumbnail. Thank you. One of the other visiting speakers to the festival was Jim O'Gorman, also known as the Dirt Doctor. I caught up with him at the Dunedin Botanic Gardens on a sunny Saturday afternoon. As we waited for people to gather for a workshop Jim is giving on making compost, he fills me in on his secret to nursing soil back to good health. It all depends on compost, doing it correctly. And this is where a lot of people get it wrong. For most people, it's a, a squadgy blot at the bottom of the garden is the best way to describe it. Gently putressing anaerobic organic matter is another way of talking about it. And it really isn't that much good for your garden. But if you take that, those ingredients and you mix them properly and put them together well you'll have something that will feed your garden like I'm talking about feed not just the garden version of say fish and chips on a continuing basis this is like a three course dinner with some greens and salad and yeah, all the things yeah, and good all for the, you. And all of the munchable things and all, all of the roughage that the soil needs. And that's something that we've missed for a long, long time, getting roughage back into our soil. And that we're talking about the organic matter, the, uh, the stable humus fraction of the soil, the, the woody material, the, the wood chips, the harder, difficult to break down leaves and the, the twigs and so on. They're what we need to put into our soil for long-term health. I feel like the putric anaerobic stack of things, you know, breaking down is an accurate description of my compost heap. Afraid so for a lot of folks. We tend to throw our lawn clippings on there and chuck all the, the food scraps on as we go. And, That's right, the and, veggie peels, they yeah, go in there. Yeah, yeah and yeah, it just sits there. Yeah, it just sits there and you, you run away and don't want to do anything with it. Yeah. Pretty much. What are you at today? We're here in Botanic Gardens, in the Upper Botanic Gardens of Dunedin. Yes, it's And beautiful. there's a group gathering. Yes, we've got 20 booked for this, uh, for this show. We have one this morning. We've already built a compost and we're going to have another one this afternoon. I hope we've got enough <laughs> ingredients left. <laughs> we've, we've had a, a willing band of helpers with all sorts of tools and we're away and it's been a hands-on exercise. So. Yeah. It looks like the group is ready to go. Yeah, so it looks like we're pretty much here. Maybe yep. it's time yep. to move. Yep. yep. As a group, we head towards a small kitchen garden section tucked away behind a stout hedge. There we can see the mounded compost from this morning's workshop and the raw materials that will become a compost heap 
this afternoon. Someone was talking to me this morning. They said, well, when we want to put in the garden, we go and buy compost, we buy the seeds, we buy the plants, we buy the various things to add to the soil, then we buy the, the herbicides and pesticides and so on and so on. By the time we eat the first lettuce out of the ground, it's cost us several hundred dollars. That's not a cheap lettuce. <laughs> and, and you're not going to get much back out of it. So this is no cost or very low cost. What it's cost me here is a little bit of lime and sulphur. The first thing is to identify the difference between stable and consumable humus. What you've got in your compost at home is the light stuff that the garden can consume within a few weeks. You can put it on, put it in the garden, and within a few weeks, it's gone, it's disappeared. Whereas with a lot of this stuff, the woody material and the hard slash and the, uh, the organic matter, this hard, uh, long-term stable humus will last in the ground for several years. That's what we're aiming for. So we'll start off at the bottom here. We need to put, we're going to start with creating an air passage. And to do that, we've got right here at this place here, something that people say, no, you can't use that in the compost. I say, yes, you must. With a bunch of tea coca, cabbage tree leaves to provide that airflow at the base and some chip branches and leaves on top, watering is the next step, says Jim. And an important step throughout. This is one of the points where most people miss, is that they don't get enough water on their compost. And when you think you've got enough water on, keep going. So we go brown, green, brown, green, Layer by layer, the stack is built up. Brown woody material, green garden clippings, kelp if you have it, says Jim, a bit of animal manure, he's got chicken manure today, plus some lime and sulphur. The mound is kept nice and rectangular and at the end, holes are poked in to allow airflow. It will then be covered and will take a year to heat and mulch down. If you want to come by this area again in the next couple of days to check out what we've done and see how it's cooking, you're most welcome to. The full recipe can be found on Jim's website, thedirtdoctor.co.nz. But with some good tips in mind to improve my own wheat composting efforts, I head back towards the city for my catch-up with Professor Amanda Black. First, I ask her, what exactly is the role of bioprotection Aotearoa? Our focus is protection of our productive landscapes, and we don't have any particular landscape in mind. I mean, some of the landscapes we look at are kiwifruit orchards or horticultural orchards, maize, pasture, of course, and a little bit of forestry, and our conservation estate, you know, that unfortunately now sits very fragmented next to these um, primary productive landscapes and how this all interacts and what we can learn from that going forward, how we can manage and redesign some of our landscapes, the productive ones so that we still have money coming in because that's the basis of our external economy and we can protect our conservation estate because that's something that we culturally, both Māori and Pākehā, it's near and dear to us. Fundamentally, you need a vision and if you don't have a vision, I think nothing falls into place. And so our vision was an intergenerational perspective on what it means to have healthy, productive landscapes and we use Te Taio and Te Ao Māori values as our framework around that. And of course, Papatūnuku, which is the soil, I mean, it, it's everything. Without it and without a healthy soil, we couldn't grow the plants, you know, to feed ourselves. We couldn't grow the plants to feed the animals. And we couldn't grow stuff that we end up selling overseas that bring in money 
you know, that help by things like medicine and infrastructure. We need critical ecological infrastructure to make sure that that's healthy, especially going forward, given that all the insidious environmental issues that are facing us, like climate change. And, you know, we've seen the events of the past couple of months of the cyclones and what happens to the landscapes. And if, you, you know, if you're not managing it properly, that kind of devastation happens. So what do we do going forward? That big picture thinking. But how do you break this down into manageable pieces of work and research questions that can help address the problems we face? One of the ways that Bioprotection Aotearoa does this is work with different communities around the country that have different landscape uses with different problems to solve. And so everything we do, we look at the mechanisms that might help resilience going forward. And so we have people working in the soils, trying to understand the, the soil ecology and microbiology, what pathways and mechanisms and characters in there help that resilience, especially in the face of climate change. And we're working in Takaha. So looking at that mosaic there, we've got kiwi fruit, um, orchards, we have maize, and of course we have some forestry and native blocks. And so we're working across that landscape to understand what that might look like. Um, we're also working on Banks Peninsula, so that's Watermark and Canterbury, where they have a, a different land use. You know, it's not as lush as, say, perhaps Takaha. But we're looking at how you've got Kanuka coming in there and they're looking at establishing a young industry and how this might be planted out in a way that prevents weed invasions because weediness is a huge part of issues and what we do in the landscape as well. And then we have the Wairarapa, where I've just come back from, working with um, University of Victoria, one of our partners there, and they're trying to understand resilience and wetland restoration. So it's kind of a ground-level to top-level scale of things. And we've done it by bite-sized regions, going around regions and looking at their different issues and working very closely with the communities there, understanding their needs and sort of bringing the high-level science in um, and joining it somehow with the community needs too. In terms of her own research area... My passion is um, forest and soil, and forest health and, and, of course, soil health. And so I work to understand what it is in the soils that we need to ensure that our forests are healthy and resilient. Amanda started about eight years ago investigating the landscape effects on kauri dieback, which is caused by a pathogen that lives in the soil. That soil pathogen is Phytophthora agathodistis. It's one of the Phytophthora umycete species that was introduced at some point in New Zealand. Umycete species are these fungus-like, but not quite fungus, microorganisms. So not a bacteria, not quite a fungus. They're kind of their own thing. They're often referred to as water molds, and they include some of the most notorious pathogens of plants. For example, potato blight. Kauri dieback damages tree roots and impacts the tree's ability to take water and nutrients from the soil. It has had a devastating effect on the kauri forest in the top of Te Ikaau Maui. When I started out, nobody really knew anything about its vectoring in the environment. We knew it moved within the soil. We're not sure how land use management impacted on its growth and movement and survival. And that's partly what I did. I And again, it comes back to these fragments and these mosaics of the landscape we had. Part of what we needed to know is that when you move between these landscapes, and this pathogen moves with us because we are the main vector of it in, in most of the areas. If it's not us, it's feral animals. So it would pick up from one forest and would sit in a pasture for a while until it was picked up again, and then it moved into another forest, that, a virgin forest that hadn't had it before. And how did this change through through the time? And what we found is that 
um, when you have these changes, so you get a native forest into a pasture, it does change the pathogens' survival and, I guess, virulence, for a word I'm seeking for here. Um, so it becomes slightly more virulent, a virulent form in the pasture, and then, of course, that's going to be picked up and transferred into a, a forest that hasn't had it before, and it changes it again. So, you know, some of our research showed that when you when you do have movement between these land uses in the soil because of the different soil microorganisms and different characteristics that made um, what we call disease reservoir for this pathogen. And so that's something that came to light is that you have an invasive species here, but the land use that you have around some of our critical forest areas means that you made it even easier for it to become more invasive. Which, you know, is really interesting, but also really challenging to deal with when you want to try stop cowdery dieback. There's just so much going on in soil. It just goes to show that, you know, we we just like to think of the soil as just some sort of infinite resource that doesn't really change. It doesn't have its own unique system or characteristics, and yet it clearly does. And it has its own ecosystem and food web, obviously. I mean, lots of people, you know, when you've got above ground, you're looking at insects and birds and plants. It's quite obvious who eats what. But it's not so obvious in the soil. It's a much more complex beast. And it also has a a different, I guess, environment with, you know, if you've got water movement everywhere and you have an atmosphere, like it's different gases. And so it creates its own unique system itself. And, And it's one of the hardest, I guess, systems to actually understand because it is so complicated and there's just everything happening at once. You know, you've got enzymes doing their thing, you've got fungi doing their thing, you've got things eating things. Like There's just so much, and it's spatially very different everywhere you go. And of course, the plant has a massive effect on that as well. Amanda's research has now moved on to understanding in a more holistic way how ecological changes have impacted on the soil's resilience. Lost connections between species fragmentation of the land, weed introduction, pathogens sneaking across the borders, climate change. All of these have battered away at the ability of the land to cope. She's wondering if re-establishing connections that used to exist will help the soils fight back. If we go back to, I guess, pre-European times, more when there were much, much fewer people here, Birds dominated the landscape and every ecosystem around the world has, you know, key ecological species that help drive systems. And in New Zealand, because we lack of big mammals, they were birds. And uh, the birds would have transferred a lot of the nutrients around. They would have pollinated some plants. They would have dispersed some seeds so that you could get recruitment in the forest. But also they would have deposited the nutrients through, you know, their droppings, and particularly seabirds. And that would have been the main source of inorganic fertiliser or nutrients that New Zealand forests and soils had. Now, they have been largely absent from the mainland for a long time. I think New Zealand has probably, we've seen probably about a 45% extinction of our birds. And I guess you don't see those massive flocks of kaka and, and kereru that uh, people talk about, well, komato talk about, you know, passed down oral history. We don't see those either. And so what does that mean for our forests, in particular our soils, when they're not getting the nutrients they used to? Are we actually in a deficit? And that's what we're trying to understand. So we're going back in time to figure out how we can help going forward, I guess, by um, seeing what it was if we reconstruct bringing back some of these ecological ketone species like the black petrel and Great Barrier, so Aotea Great Barrier, 
if we allow, you know, bring back these keystone species, does that mean we'll be able to increase the resilience of us all going forward? Part of the job Amanda really enjoys is her close work with different communities. The communities I work with are just really humble and they're trying to do the right thing with the the skills that they have and the capacity that they have. Um, and I admire that. It takes time to gain trust and respect, but it's worthwhile in the end. And, you know, when you have such big problems, global problems, national problems, it can all just get a bit much. But if you work, you know, if you're just working with one community at a time or one group of people at a time, you can do something. So you feel less helpless. And I think that's the beauty of working with groups in different regions that you feel like you are doing something and that you hope that um, by by helping them and that, that it will spill over to they can then help something else or you can move on to the next group and help them. And so, you know, eventually it will connect all together and make the place just a bit better. As part of this, she says, she often uses purako, Māori stories about the natural world. It helps communicate some of the science concepts to communities that I work with, but for me it also helps remind me that everything is connected. As scientists, we tend to want to compartmentalise everything because actually, you know, it is easier to uh, answer certain questions that way. And then we have to bring it all together. So what does this mean? You know, why does this matter and what does this mean? And and that's how some of the pūrāko can help um, bring that together, that holistic approach. is like, okay, you've studied this because this is related to this and this is going to have an ongoing effect of this. And we can explain that in terms of whakapapa as well. I particularly like the story of the Cody and his whale brother because to me that that is the link between the land and the sea and that's the link that I think is critical with the soils as well. And I think that's where the birds come in because they are the link for the soils and the sea, the land and the sea. The Cody and the Tohora, so the southern right whale, were brothers on the land and they walked side by side. And the whale decided to go back to the sea and he wanted his brother to come with him, but his brother decided to stay on land. And to comfort his brother while he was away, the whale gave the Cody his skin. And so if you look at the bark of the Cody, it kind of looks like fish scales, it's got that shimmery look to it. And in exchange, the Cody gave the whale his resin to keep him warm in the water. And they were always connected in that way. Um, And as the climate changed, the Cody got cold because of lack of resin. He gave it to his whale brother. And so that's why the Cody can only exist in the the top half of the North Island, really. And, And that's how it goes. But what they are trying to do with Cody dieback is use part of that pūrāko and that's where the, the rongo practitioners um, Tohi Ashby and Hori Parato who still harvest beach whales are using that combining with their plant um, medicinal knowledge to create um, poultices I suppose to put on the infected trees so when you see the lesions on the trees from the tree trying to bleed the pathogen out, the disease out um, they've been applying that and had some um, positive results as a core, a centre of research excellence, Bioprotection Aotearoa also has a remit to educate the next generation of researchers. Something, as director, Professor Amanda Black is very passionate about. So a bulk of our work is done by early career researchers. So students, we have summer interns, 
we have students and we have postdoctoral fellows. And what we really want to do is start to instill the values and the ethics and the behaviour and the networking that comes from being a good researcher. Science excellence is a given in a core, but it's really the values and the conduct and the ethics that we need to instill in our researchers and who are going to be the future leaders of tomorrow. I'm what you consider mid-career now, and I see the need to break down silos, um, to get people working together and respectful of one another and differences of opinions coming from, you know, knowledges from different sources, to be able to take that and, you know, solve big problems that are coming up. Because the only way we can do this is if we act like a community. Thanks to Professor Amanda Black of Bioprotection Aotearoa and the University of Lincoln. Thanks also to Emma Curtin, Jim O'Gorman and the Wild Dunedin Festival Committee for facilitating the 7x7 Wild Talks recording. This episode was produced by me, Claire Kincannon, with help from senior podcast producer Liz Garten and our Changing World producer, Ellen Rikers. Sound engineering was by Phil Bench. Our website is at rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworlds, where you'll find photos and links related to this episode, as well as our extensive back catalogue of hundreds of episodes, plus the opportunity to sign up to our monthly newsletter. Also, keep an eye on the podcasts and series tab on the main website. New awesome podcasts are being created all the time. If you haven't caught up with the second season of Know My Town yet, I highly recommend that you do. Tenakwe ifakarongomai. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Claire Kincannon. Have a great week. Kia pai to wiki. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.